a couple of years back when uh, our eldest son, Graydon, was uh, working summer job uh, during university, he was building foundations for Jeffrey Holmes, or participating in the building of foundations. Uh, one thing I know that he participated so much that his clothes were a disaster every day, and my job was to pick him up, take him to work, pick him up, because he didn't have a car. So I would, uh, on my way, to, before I would go to get him, I would open up the trunk, get out a gigantic plastic, roll of plastic, and completely cover the passenger side of the car so that when I was driving around, I looked like a staff car for the Center for Disease Control, you know? And so I would put him in like he was some sort of toxic waste, in the, and, and that's basically what he was, and sit in my car. And I would drive him back home, and, and of course, uh, when he would get out of the car, I would say to him, now change your clothes right away, because the stuff you're wearing has no place in my home. What we're going to look at today in God's Word has something to do with that very reality. Uh, our address is... Yeah, it's in Christ, all right. Our address, the, sh the vertically challenged people will have lots of energy to give this up. We're in Christ. That's our address, right? We're in Christ. And being in Christ means that there is no place for the old clothes of our old life. And we are called upon to put on our new clothes in Christ. We're going to talk about how to do that today. If you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Pastor Calvin last week introduced chapter 4, the first part of chapter 4 to you, and he taught you that we are, call, we are to live a life worthy of our calling. What I have to say to you today and from here on in the scriptures, uh, in the book of Ephesians, is a practical outworking of what it means to live a life worthy of your calling. What is the practical look to that? We have looked at all of the theology of who we are and that we are in Christ and what God has done for us, what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. And uh, now we're ready to go on what it means to actually live the Christian life victoriously. I must say the Holy Spirit is in the house today. It's been pretty evident. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is... Freedom, liberty, absolutely. And so this is what God offers to us this morning in this text. And I want you to note a couple of things. First of all, um, we are called to put off our old self in verse 22. Now, you know lately I've been trying to give you one little thing at the front end of the sermon that is critical for you to know in case you fall asleep and don't hear anything else. Because I always want to make sure you hear the real punchline and uh, verse 23 is it. If you don't understand anything else, I want you to know this. This is how you can change. Verse 23, by the renewing of your mind. This is critical. There is no shortcut to this. There's no other way. This is the scripture uh, truth on this reality. If you are going to change your life, it will be because your mind has been renewed by the word of God. That's why we're a Bible church. That's why we believe in the book. Because the book, the words of God are powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword. And the words of God are what cause change to happen in our lives, energized by the spirit of God. 
it is critical that we change our attitude because if you change your attitude, it will change what you believe. And if you change what you believe, it will change what you, what you trust. And if you change what you trust, it will change what you have faith in. And if you change what you have faith in, it will change your behavior. It has to. This is the upshot of this section of God's word this morning. We've learned in the past, earlier, in earlier sermons, that his purpose, or Christ's purpose, was to create in himself one new man. And in this one body, reconcile both of them to God through the cross. He, it was God's purpose, Christ's purpose, to bring us together, to create. Uh, I, I've highlighted that word in my, uh, my, my uh, notes here, to create in himself a new man. And we find out today that you were taught to put on the new man created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. The emphasis is on creation. This is a work of God from start to finish. What he begins in our life, he continues and completes in our life. But we are called to cooperate with what God is doing. I want you to be abundantly clear that this is not a human work. That's legalism. You've tried your whole life. You've been trying to change your behavior. You've been trying to, to live like Christ. You can't do this on your own strength. If it could be done in our own strength, we would live in a moral world because people would be able to do what they can't do. And Christians, whether you've come to know Christ or not, you can't do this on your own. Many Christians struggle for years and years and years making no progress towards spiritual growth because they are trying to change themselves based on their own strength. That's legalism. It doesn't work. This is a work of grace. It's a creation of God whereby he recreates our thinking and our attitudes so that our behavior will change. But this is important that we understand how this is done. At salvation, you are automatically transferred into the new man community. You are given a new address. But you are not automatically transformed into the new man likeness. You may be still parading around in that address wearing your old clothes. This, Paul says, must change. In fact, in verse 17 he says, I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord. This is not a, a trivial matter and it's not an optional matter. It is a command of God. Uh, this is not something you say, well, look, you know what, I, ca I came to know Christ, I'm saved, I'm, I'm good, uh, um, I've got my fire insurance, I'm going to heaven, it really doesn't matter what I'm like because Christ will clean me up at the end. No, that's not what the Bible pictures. This, is given, this text gives us confidence to know we truly belong to the Lord. That's why he says at the beginning of this chapter, you need to live a life worthy of your calling, making your calling a sure thing or secure. So we're talking now about transformative Christianity, which quite frankly, in my mind, is the only kind of Christianity that, that there really is. Transformative Christianity, growing, being sanctified. And by the way, it's generally just a whole bunch of little changes in the opposite direction of the way you used to live. As the Spirit of God chips away at your life and, and puts you in a, a, a full Nelson and says, you've got to make some changes in your life. And here are the changes you've got to make. And there's little changes over time and over a lifetime. We grow more and more like Christ. So, in order to change, what do we need to be taught? Well, let's look at the text. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. 
So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. Now, um, Gentiles there, of course, is, is a, a, a reference to those outside of Christ, those who are lost. Because we're Gentiles in here today and many of us are believers. It's the lost. In the futility of their thinking, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. That's the human condition. That's the human problem, the hardness of hearts, not soft toward God. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. You, however, did not come to know the Christ that way. The word, the definite article should actually be in there. The Christ. You did not come to know the Messiah. Paul wants to really emphasize his stature, his authority, who he is, who Jesus, who's this Jesus? He is the Christ, the longed for Messiah, the one who has come to save your hearts. Now, uh, verse 21 should read, it would be better if it were translated this, if indeed you heard him and were taught in him just as truth is in Jesus. I prefer that translation. Uh, because there's a big difference between heard of Jesus and heard Jesus. Do you agree? Big difference. This is, quest this is questioning. This is putting the question out to all so-called believers as to whether you actually have heard the call of Jesus to call you into his kingdom or not. Uh, lots of people have heard of Jesus, but Christians actually have heard Jesus. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. All right? There's a distinction made here between us and them. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which has been corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something, on, doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Just as in your address, God forgave you. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we... Um, I want to pause right now and, and ask you, uh, because you are gracious and merciful and kind, that you would be willing to help us where we are helpless 
and help us to move forward in ways that, were, that are unimaginable to us. Lord, as we look at this text and we look at some of the practical realities of this text and we look at some of the failures that, we ha- uh, that really are glaring at us from the text, Lord, we want to grow. We want to be changed. We want to be more set apart for, for your purposes and useful to you. And, and oh, oh God, I just pray this morning that you would cause our hearts to fully cooperate with what you want to do. I pray, God, that in this place we would embrace your truth, that, we, that it would move so deeply into our lives that it would radically change how we live. And in radically changing how we live, oh God, uh, it would radically change this congregation and our relationships. Lord, we long to see what it could look like if we were all living a life worthy of our calling in these practical ways. And Lord, if our congregation and its relationships became uh, this vital, uh, it would shake the city and it would shake the province. And, and Lord, if we're praying for revival, it starts right here. It starts with our lives together, living them out as, a, as a, the new man in Christ. So Father, I pray this morning that uh, by the power of your spirit, you would lock us into this word and that you would um, lock our hearts onto this, and that we would believe what you say, we would trust what you say, we would have faith in what you, would say, what you say, and it would change how we live. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, in order to change, the text says we need to be taught. It says you were taught, verse 22, you were taught. So what do we need to be taught? Well, the contrast here is to... to to understand that we used to live a distorted, fallen, worldly-shaped mind life, and we are being reshaped or changed into a renewed mind that will change the way we live, a new creation mindset. Just like Paul talked in Romans 12 too, stop being conformed to this world and start being transformed by the renewing of your mind. He, he never changes his, his mind on this because the Spirit of God is directing him. So I want to point out three things about change, and then I want to look at the practical examples here of change this morning. And the, the, first of all, uh, as with anything in life, you will not change, you will never change unless you want to change. That's why Paul reminds all of us how it used to be, or if you got saved when you were really little, how it could have been if you had not come to know Christ. And so he talks about their lives of distorted thinking and futility of thinking. And he's really saying to them, aren't you tired? Aren't you tired of living the way you used to live? I mean, you have high-octane spiritual energy inside of you, the same the same power that raised Christ from the dead, the same power that spoke the universe into existence, is resident in you. Are you not sick of living the way you used to live when you could live in, the, in, in, in liberty and freedom uh, with, because of the Spirit of God in your life? Aren't you sick of that? He describes it here that we need to stop living this way. You have to stop living like everybody else around you. Um, purposeless, whole futile thinking, purposeless of mind, the way it was. They, people know there's a problem, but they don't know what to do with it. They're, they're godless, they're hardened heart, and ignorance, never independently thinking about God. Think about this, and you, you probably know this, the people that are around you who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, they're not like you. I mean, we think about the Lord all the time. We're thinking about him every hour, every minute. We think about God. They don't think about God at all never crosses their mind except maybe out of their mouth as a profanity. 
But people who are godless, who have hardened hearts, they're never thinking about God. They don't spend any time determining their behavior on the basis of what God might think. Paul says, why are you living like that too? You You shouldn't be living like that. Aren't you tired of living like that? Aren't you tired of living with moral insensitivity? You no longer can feel shame or pain or anything. The way the the people of the world live, they've made an idol of sensuality because they don't have any other God. They need to feel something, and so they're always, always searching for more sensuality because they don't have holy spirituality. And it's always a diminishing return. Only this eternal God will fill us and satisfy us We were made in the image of God. The reason that our our culture is struggling with an identity crisis is because we were meant, meant to have our identity in Christ. We were made in the image of God, every single human being. The reason that people are struggling and really struggling today has become more and more public and they're choosing this identity and that identity, seeking to find some identity that will bring them satisfaction is because they need an identity in Christ. And Paul is saying, we want to live with the identity of Christ. That's what it means to put on the garment of Christ. Now, this um, whole imagery of clothing and our spirituality, our salvation, is not a new concept in the Bible. In fact, when Jesus was walking with the guys to Emmaus, I'm sure he took them right back to the very beginning and and showed them that in Genesis chapter 3, verses 7 and 21, this very same theology was being taught right there about Jesus. You're saying, what are you talking about? I'm talking about the Garden of Eden. This whole garment business started back there, remember? Because we all started out naked, remember? Well, we didn't, but Adam and Eve did. Well, we did too. We were born naked, that's true. Anyway, in the Garden of Eden, you'll recall that, um, that Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. That's what the Bible says, right? And uh, then they sinned against God. And what was the first thing they did? Talk to me. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't make anything out. But I'm glad you're participating. Um, I'll, I'll assume that you said they made themselves some clothes. Is that what you said? Verse 7. They made themselves some clothes uh, of fig leaves, right? But the, the emphasis is on they made themselves clothes. They were hoping to hide their guilt and shame, right? That's what they were doing. And what was the first thing that God did? Made them different garments, right? That's what you want to say. You're hesitant. I don't know if I got the right answer. And he'll yell at me. I've never yelled at you. God made them, it says in the text, verse 21, Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, God gave them garments of skin as a replacement of the garments they had made. By his grace, he placed on them clothing that were the sacrificial results of the life of another. At that moment in the Garden of Eden... Calvary and the work of Christ was pictured. You are, were going to be offered a trade of the garments you have made your whole life, the garments of lying, the garments of stealing, trying to protect yourself, trying to, to hide your shame, trying to hide your guilt, the garments that you have made, you are being in the identity that you have created of yourself, and you are going to be given 
a new identity in Christ, the identity that you were always made to have. And these garments will be given to you on the basis of the sacrifice of another so that you have life. That's the picture that's given to us. That's the gospel. The gospel appears in Genesis chapter 3. And moves its way through the whole of scriptures. That's why Jesus, when he was walking on the road to Emmaus, took them back through the scriptures and showed them everything that was talked about in the scriptures about him. He went there for sure and started there and moved his way through. And so we have this amazing reality that Paul is now talking about and saying this can be yours. This is yours. You've given away what you made in favor of what Christ, by, by his grace, has given to you. You'll never change until you want to change. So do you want to change? I mean, as you look at this list of lying and stealing and anger and sinful anger and unwholesome talk and bitterness and brawling and slander and malice and all those kinds of things, don't you want to change? As Paul says, of course you want to change. It's just we don't know how to. One writer put it this way. Actually, Augustine said this. Lust is an insubordination of the flesh. And philosopher Hippolytus said this, people hate their sins, but they can't leave them because they don't know how. So, to change, you must have a correct example or pattern for change. The assumption, of course, is that our lives will be different because we're Christians. That's the expectation, the old way of life didn't bring you to Christ. That's what it says in the text here, right? In verse 20. You, however, did not come to know the Messiah. You did not come to know personally the Christ this way, by living in the old way of life, and it still won't lead you to Christ. You have to be done with your old clothes. The old lifestyle didn't bring you to Christ. You have to enroll, literally, in Christ's college. Be taught by him. Be retaught, to, to rethink all the ways that you thought. That's the only way you're going to change. In fact, the school mission statement, Jesus' school mission statement is something like this. Let me protect you from yourself. Let me teach you how to live righteously. Let me teach you how to be freed from sin's power. That's the mission statement of Jesus' college that you enroll in when you come to know Christ. That's why it says here, surely you heard Jesus and were taught in him the truth. What did we learn about Jesus? We learned about his death and his resurrection. We learned that sin brings death and that Jesus has taken that sin to the cross. We learned that he died and, and conquered death by being raised again. We learned that. This, this whole text is a, is a parallel to so many other gospel texts or epistle texts that, that Paul wrote it, with regard to a baptismal formula of you identified with Christ, you were taught in Christ. When you came to know Christ, you um, uh, symbolically uh, removed the old garments and took on new. Now, uh, maybe some of you aren't aware that in the ancient, uh, ancient uh, days, in the issue of uh, methodology of, of baptism, they used to take uh, um, uh, the candidate and put an old garment on them and baptize them. And uh, when they were coming out of the water, they would take off the old garment and put on a new garment. The, the picture is amazing. It's actually the, the, the picture of this reality. I, I'm suspecting that it lost popularity because of modesty, perhaps. I'm not sure. I'm trying to think how that, that would, would happen here. But you know what I'd love to see here? Because you see we have these black garments, these black garments, and, and you go in with black and you come out with black. There's something kind of wrong with that. 
you know, what we really need to do is take those black garments. Don't get, don't get nervous now. Everybody who's been baptized, they're going, oh, thank goodness I've been baptized. Because he's coming up with a harebrained idea now that I'm not really sure I'm into. But, you know, it would be really cool to take the black garment that you, that you wore and you wear that robe in. You come in with the black garment on and, and then you would identify with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And when you came out, you would be put on the white garment and you would walk out of the tank in the white garment. That's the picture. That's the theological picture of what's happening here. And by the way, this behavioral change is not optional. I've said this to you. This is not, oh, this would be nice. It'd be so nice if I didn't have sinful anger anymore. It'd be so nice if I wasn't lying and chirping and unwholesome talk and all that. It'd be so good, you know. This is not about that. This is, this is absolutely necessary. Our, the validity of our salvation is on the line with these kinds of texts. The practical outworking of the truth validates whether we have Christ or we don't. And I throw this out to you in terms of baptism because this formula of baptism is so critical that if you claim to, that your address is in Christ but you haven't been baptized yet, you absolutely must be baptized. It's a command of Christ. It's a picture of your agreement that my old life needs to die and my new life is where I'm picking this up from. And in the absence of doing that, it's, it's the first command of Christ in your life. So if you know the Lord Jesus Christ and you've yet to be baptized, I've got no harebrained ideas. I'll leave the garments the way they are. But you need to be baptized. Listen, this is not something we can, we can play around with, our salvation. Maybe, maybe you need another, um, uh, another illustration to help you out. But if you were to turn to Matthew 22, we're not going to take a, take a good, uh, careful look at that. But it's, there's a, the parable there of Jesus and the banquet. And at the banquet, which, which is a, um, a reference to eternity, the final, the, the final supper of the Lamb and all that kind of stuff, where you're going into eternity with Christ, Christ happens to look down in, in, the, in the room and he notices there's someone there with the wrong uniform on. And he says, that person with that garment, how did they get in here? And they're wearing that garment. And they've apparently been in the room for a long time. And Jesus said in the final reckoning, get that person and Kick them out of the room because they don't have the right garment on. Now, I'm not preaching some sort of work salvation here. I'm not suggesting that you're saved by baptism. But I'm saying this, that Jesus knows what garment you're wearing. And it would be horrible for you to sit in this room Sunday after Sunday after Sunday and hear about Jesus and think you had the garment when in fact there's nothing going on in your life. There's no change going on in your life. There's no obedience to Christ going on in your life. And I want to say, if you won't even obey him in baptism, I can't imagine how you can obey him in any of these other things. Kind of quiet. To change, you have to have the correct example and pattern of change. Christ is our pattern. In Christ you have found the truth about yourself and life. The expectation, of course, is conversion. So what's your plan? The third in terms of change is change will occur if you approach it with a scriptural plan for change. What's your plan? It starts by being committed to the idea that our mind must be renewed. That I've been being shaped by... um, People around me, I've been shaped by entertainment, I've been shaped by my neighbors, I've been shaped by my friends, I've been shaped by my family. And much of this is not in keeping with the truth of Christ. 
And by the way, just because you visit a zoo doesn't mean you're going to turn into a lion. And just because you visit a church doesn't mean you're going to turn into a great Christian. You have to be renewed in your thinking. I put it this way. If you wish to make changes in what you are, you have to make changes in what you want. And to make changes in what you want, you have to make changes in the things that shape your wants. So what shapes your wants? I'm telling you that Paul is saying this has got to be it. You've got to have your mind renewed here. The wants of your life have to come out of here because everything else is driving you in the wrong direction. So, this is not an external makeover we're talking about. This is an extreme makeover. He says, um, put off the old clothes and put on new clothes. I'm one of these guys who, when I do renovations and stuff, which I hardly ever do because I'm no good at it, I'm kind of like, oh, that has to be painted? Um, now everybody would say, you know what? You should scrape off all the old paint and start and do, I just paint over top of it. I, I tried to tell you, why would I do this scraping thing when I can just paint over top of it? And then, of course, two years later, I realized why I should have done that. This is not this. This is not just paint, painting over your old life. or putting Like, Graydon couldn't say to me, hey, could I just go on and put, put my tracksuit on over my old clothes and hang around the house? I'm like, no, you cannot. Because that dust, that foundation dust, that stuff's going to bleed through those sweatpants. And it's going to, little granules are going to fall off your pants onto my floor. No, you can't. You've got to take it all off, shower, and get something new on. That's what Paul's talking about here. You can't, you can't just uh, wallpaper over your old life. You have to say goodbye to it and start over with a renewed mind. So what changes are you going to make starting today? It says in the text we've got to put off lying. Put on speaking the truth because we are one body. Do you realize that lying is a distinctive trait of Satan's family? There should be no place for lying in Christianity. Why do I say that? John 8, 44. Satan is the father of lies. That means his family are liars. I don't want to be in his family. We are called upon to be people of truth. Keep in mind that uh, we make our decisions in life based on telling each other the truth. Don't we? Why do people lie? They lie to acquire. They lie to enhance. They lie to protect. Doesn't our faith rely on the truth? If God is lying to us, we're all in big trouble. We rely on it for stability. We rely on it for security. We rely on it for strength. We, we live in relationship with each other. We rely on each other telling each other the truth because we make decisions based on the fact that of what someone has told us. And we live as family together. You, you've sent your children down to our, our, our children's ministries in our sea wing because you believe us. You, you believe we're telling you the truth that we're, we're going to treat your kids well down there. We're going to teach them the truth. We're not going to teach them lies. Isn't that the way it is? And, and he gives this one body picture which is really helpful because, you know, if I'm holding an 800-pound weight here, I'm not going to lie to my foot and say, hey, would you mind catching this? We wouldn't do that to our body. Why would we do that to each other when we're in one body? There's no place for lying to each other in the body of Christ. We are called to be truthful people. It says also in the text here as we continue to move our way through that in our, in our anger, which 
means that we will be angry. We're allowed to be angry at injustice. It's an emotion that God has given us for our safety and protection. But in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. Put off extended or sinful anger. Put a curfew on your anger because unresolved anger attracts Satan. It's quite simple. That yellow, bright thing in the sky as it comes up in the morning and you're angry and it goes across the sky and comes over this way and I think I'm, I think I'm directionally right. And it sets over there. And Before that bright yellow thing goes down over the horizon, take care of your anger. Otherwise, it will settle itself in bitterness in your life. That's what we're taught here in this text. Interestingly, as one uh, writer puts it, anger is a choice to express our displeasure, usually at small things that don't really matter, where no fear is present. Anger is most often directed at the wrong people. You know, most of us don't let it rip toward our boss. Why? Because we're afraid to be angry around someone who can fire us. So what do we do? We go home and rip our wives or rip our children or rip the cat. Well, that's okay. I think that's biblically okay. <laughs> that's what we do. We, um, we are selective at, at our rage and our explosions at, and, and we come to church and, oh, aren't you nice? Aren't you winsome? Aren't you such a wonderful person? Yeah, you know nothing about this person who I live with. But you're a Christian? Get rid of that. The devil works from your anger, you know. Stop being hostile and be helpful. We're also to put off stealing. There are a lot of ways to steal. Say, oh, I don't shoplift, I don't anything like Listen, there are a lot of ways to stealing. You can steal if you don't give your full effort to your employer. That's stealing. There are a lot of ways we can steal. Rather, we are to be gainfully employed, it says in the text, right? And why does it say that? So that you'll have something to share with those in need. You, you know, we are called not to be takers, but to be givers in life. Producers to benefit beyond ourselves. As the commentator in this text wrote, our goal is not personal enjoyment, it is productivity so that we can give. You know, if you want to wear Christ's championship coat, if you really want to wear Jesus' jersey, you got to be someone who's productive and a steward of the things that you have, not leeches and thieves on society. Because our God is creative, our God is productive, our God is a giver, not a taker. We are called to do this. It also says we're to put off destructive speech and put on constructive speech. See what it says here about unwholesome? Do not, un do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. Put constructive speech, something from which people can benefit and the Holy Spirit can find joy. Do you realize how powerful words are? God made the universe by speaking. Words cause action. Speech is powerful. Our mouths are loaded guns. And some people should have their license to have a tongue removed. Our, 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 our speech is powerful. We need to pay more attention not only to what we say, but how we say it. Words move people to action, whether for good or for bad. Many of you in here today are no doubt uh, the product of unwholesome words in your life. And they have dogged you forever. That people have said things to you, whether it was your parents or other people in your life, other, other so-called friends or enemies or whatever, have said something about you, and it has 
dogging you your whole life. Words are powerful. They, 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 uh, they, they tear people up. In fact, the word unwholesome here is actually used uh, for spoiled fish or rotten fruit. Now, spoiled fish, there's hardly anything more smelly than that. So it's a contrast here because, because the, um, when Christ sacrificed his life for us, it was a sweet savor in the nostrils of God. Our unwholesome speech is like spoiled, stinky fish. God is saying, you know what that smells like to me, your unwholesome speech toward one another? It stinks. It smells like spoiled fish and rotten fruit. I hate it. I want you to offer up to me something that's, that's savory and, and smells good in my nostrils. No temple trash, trashing is permitted within God's family. And there's one more here. There's a whole group of words here, which I've grouped together and just called them abuse. Bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, malice. Put off abuse. And put on lavish generosity. Look, look at the contrast here. Rather be kind and compassionate, forgiving one another, loving one another. Put on generosity of heart because God has graciously forgiven you. All of this abuse that we throw out at people is the fruit of anger and unforgiveness. Stuff we've harbored in our lives. We don't hold grudges and act upon them because we have been treated by our superior with forgiving grace. That's what's happened for us. Our Lord God has done such an amazing thing in our lives, has given us such an amazing forgiveness and loved us so immensely that we have this available to offer to others. I'm sure you've heard this psychiatrist or psychologist will say, hurt people hurt people. And there's probably hardly anybody in this room hasn't been hurt. And we go around hurting each other. We need to, we need to reorientate our thinking and our attitude. We, yeah, we may have been hurt, but now we're graced people. We've been amazingly offered the grace of God, the forgiveness of God Almighty, who is perfect and holy. We've been granted salvation through the love of Christ, who, by the way, it says in the text, sacrificed for us. It cost him something to love us. It cost God something to grace us. It cost God something to forgive us. And it will cost us something to forgive people and to love people and to grace people. Yes, you, you say, I, you don't know how hard, how hard it is, how rotten these people are and how hard they Yeah, I, I don't know, but it will cost you. Yes, it will. It will always cost you to live for Christ. Always. That's why Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. It will cost. But it is the way you grow. It is the way you imitate God. It is the way you become like Christ. Chip Ingram, and we'll close with this, said it this way. The difference between... Those who have impact on lives and those who don't is simply that the latter group doesn't want it badly enough. So when you look at this list and you think of your life, and this isn't everything, it doesn't describe every possible sin there is and all of that, do you want to live like that anymore? Aren't you frustrated? You can have a different life in Christ. You can live the flip side of everything that's talked about here that's a vice that displeases God through the power of God. I challenge you this morning. I challenge myself. I challenge all of us. In fact, um, as I was even last night studying this, I made a change in my life in a situation I'm involved in just because of the power of God's word at work in your life. And it will happen. 
I guarantee it will happen. God guarantees it will happen. So embrace his word. Your mind renewed, your attitude will change, your behavior will change. And you will live a life worthy of the calling of Christ who called you into his marvelous kingdom of light, our Father and our God. Thank you for your truth. I pray that we would embrace it with passionate hearts this morning, that our lives may truly change. For your glory's sake, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. In this matter of behavior change, I think we all agree that lying and stealing and abusive talk and all of that is bad. In fact, I think the people of our world believe it's bad. So why don't we change? Why aren't we all different? Why don't we grow past all of this stuff? Because believing that it is bad is not enough. We have to have our minds changed about the truth. For instance, um, we will stop lying when we truly believe that God will protect and reward our honesty. We'll stop stealing when we actually believe that my God can supply all your needs according to his riches in the address of Christ Jesus. So it's not knowing it's bad that will work. It's finally having our minds renewed by the truth of God's word so our attitude changes about what God will do and how God will help us to shape our behavior. That's how it's created in Christ Jesus, from his word. So, beloved, dive into his word. Know the truth. The truth sets you free from all of these things that are displeasing to God. Where the spirit of the Lord is, is liberty, is freedom. Take him up on it. He will change your life. Guaranteed. Father, thank you for your word, for your truth, for your promises. Now I pray that the Spirit of God would energize our motive, our motivation to want to change, to want to have our minds renewed, to want to have our attitudes changed, that we might believe the truth. And by believing the truth, have faith in Christ as the alternative to the things that displease you. Oh God, this is where real change comes. And we ask that we might, as a congregation, take steps, take leaps and bounds forward in this reality, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.